Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. So, Gloria, I loved your book. Oh. I just loved it. You're such a good writer. You know, no writer wants to hear anything but that. Now <laughs> I'm your slave for life. <laughs> This is Death, Sex, and Money. Don't look at me like that. I'll get a job. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Will we vote for any politician who opposes reproductive freedom? And need to talk about more. Oh my God, I loved her. I'm actress Ellen Burstyn, in for Anna Sale. I'm going to put my hearing aids up. And today, I'm talking to one of my heroes, Gloria Steinem. What do for special people like you? <laughs> for many of us, Gloria Steinem represents the women's movement. She was a founding editor of Ms. Magazine in 1972. I brought the Ms. Magazine for, I think it's 1975 when I'm on the cover. Oh. And has spent decades crisscrossing the country and the world to make women's voices and lives heard. Well, you're living alone now. We're in our 80s. I live alone. You live alone. How is that for you? Well, it's, it's not very alone, actually, because I, I want my own space. I never, ever, you know, whether I was living with a man or married, I never gave up my space, my apartment. It's also true that I have a guest room and a bath, which means... There is a kind of Steinem-Hilton aspect in my apartment of people coming and going. Mm -hmm. And also treasuring being alone, both. I have found that I need solitude. Yeah. What do you do when you're alone? Well, I answer my emails. I read. I um, sometimes get up and dance to music or you know, for do a you? minute or two. Or I do... Yoga and stretching, or I... I have to work to be in as good a health as I am. Do you? Do you work at it? I'm beginning to have to work on it. Yeah, I've been lucky so far. You don't smoke? No. Mm -mm. It made me sick to inhale, fortunately. And drinking? Do you have drink? No, I'm not interested. I'm an, I'm an ice cream person, not an alcohol <laughs> person. And during Sugar the... is my problem, not alcohol. That's not a good problem. I mean... Something to address. <laughs> right. During the 60s and 70s where everybody was doing drugs, did you do drugs? No, I didn't. You know, I think that age-wise, I just slipped right through. I was a little 
young for the alcohol generation and a little old for the drug generation, and I just slipped through there. Well, that was clever of you. <laughs> Did you fall into one or the other? Oh, I drank quite a lot, and I smoked dope a lot. I took LSD twice, but it was a waste of good drugs because I just cried the whole time. <laughs> Um, and then at a certain point, I just had had enough, and I, I stopped all of it, and I'm so much better now in every way that I don't. I mean, here we are in our 80s, working, mm -hmm. healthy, thriving, and it's a miracle to me. And that's what it does feel like, to be here and to look back on all we've done. Gloria's been doing a lot of this lately. Her book, My Life on the Road, came out earlier this year. It looks back at over four decades of travel as an activist and a journalist. When you were a little girl, did you say, I want to be a writer when I grow up? I, I don't know if I said it that way, but I was in love with uh, Little Women and Louisa May Alcott and... I lived in books. But she says she didn't spend a full year in school until she was 12 years old. Gloria's father was a traveling salesman and spent most of his life on the road buying and selling jewelry and antiques. Gloria said she learned to read from road signs. My mother told me that I was always scribbling nonsense and saying, look, I'm writing. You know, I heard a, a writing teacher say once, I can teach you how to construct a story. I can teach you how to construct a, a paragraph. I can teach you how to construct a sentence. But I can't teach you how to have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> when did you begin to feel that you had something to say? I remember in a momentary uh, contact with something like the fourth or fifth grade, because I say momentary because... My family then would, you know, leave for Florida or California, and we were living in a house trailer. So I would go to school until Halloween, say, when it got cold. Or maybe it was Thanksgiving, because I remember writing a Thanksgiving poem. And I remember the teacher saying, you couldn't have written that, that somebody else must have written that. And it so hurt my feelings mm. that, you know, it kind of set me back as, as a writer. Gloria's mother had also been a journalist, but depression took over. Gloria says that her mother spent two years in a sanatorium. She described her mother as someone who was afraid to be alone, someone who couldn't hold down a job or even concentrate long enough to read a book. Her parents separated when she was around 10, and Gloria became her mother's main caretaker. Do you look like your mother? Mm, a little bit. I have her nose, a missionary nose, as she always said. Points the way to heaven. <laughs> you know, the two of us have been blessed with the gift of beauty from our mothers, I assume. Did you have an awareness as you walked down the street that you were an attractive girl? I, I thought that if I made an effort, I knew that if I made an effort, I could be a pretty girl. I never was actually called beautiful until I became a feminist. And that so lowered the standards. 
<laughs> You're so modest. No, really. Well, I remember when I first heard about the women's movement, and I was totally, you know, men were the boss and they were the smart ones and they were the ones that made the world happen. And so anyway, when I heard about the, the women's movement secondhand, I kind of had an attitude about it. And then I saw you on television, and I went, oh, she's beautiful. Mm. And then I started paying attention. <laughs> and I say this because I think it's important to know that the patriarchy has been very successful in brainwashing not only men but women. Yes, absolutely. I was kind of worried by this idea that I was only getting attention, not because I was saying something worthwhile, but because I was a pretty girl. And finally, one wonderful old woman, probably younger than I am now, I don't know, but anyway, stood up in the audience and said to me, as we were discussing this very thing, and she said, honey, it's important for somebody who could play the game and win to say the game isn't worth shit. Oh, that's and I great. thought, oh, good, now I have a purpose. <laughs> Gloria and I are nearly the same age. I'm one year older, and we both came out of the Midwest, she from Ohio, me from Michigan. We were both born at the end of the Great Depression. We both voted for Adlai Stevenson the first time we voted for president. We both landed in New York. I was here studying with Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio. Gloria established New York as her home, from which she traveled. The one thing that is very different about us is that you had a loving and supportive father. Mm. And when you talked about the fact that your father was interested in what you had to say and sought out your opinions, um, I realized in reading that that the first time anybody, man, um, was interested in anything I had to say was Lee Strasberg when I was already 32 years old. Oh, that's fascinating. No, because I think it's so crucial to have the first uh, male human being you know, you know, be somebody who listens to you and takes you seriously because otherwise it's really hard to know that it's possible. Well, it certainly was for me. Whereas what was comfortable to you was always kindness mm. from a man. I was so moved by that. Yes, no, I I realize my father was kind and funny and listened to me and treated me like a friend. He was completely kind of irresponsible about money and all of that, but that matters so much less. And actually, it was kind of good in the long run as a good training for being a freelance writer. <laughs> When did you learn about money, and how did you learn about money? Um, well, you know, thanks to the fact that my father also never had a job and was always, you know, making deals and, uh, you know, never— his, his philosophy of life was that if you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, that's a good thing because it might be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so I was being a freelance writer and not having any money to save— and assuming that I would be a bag lady. Did you ever think no, that? No. Not for a I moment. was sure I was going to be a bag lady. No kidding. Right. What, what would make you think that? Well, I, I just couldn't imagine that I could continue to support myself. I mean, I was supposed to get married and have a man to support me, but that seemed to be 
a kind of hard bargain. And, and you really didn't want to get married? That was an active thought that you didn't want to get well, married? Well, it wasn't. I wasn't that smart. I just kept putting it off. <laughs> I kept saying, yes, I'm definitely going to do what society says I have to do because there's no choice. And fortunately, the women's movement came along and said this amazing thing, which is not everyone has to live the same way. Yeah. And that was uh, like a, a, a blessing. I was so impressed with the fact that your book is really telling other people's stories. And yet we get to know you better through the telling of the stories by what you choose to tell about people. Part of it, if uh, being a journalist first means that you're supposed to not tell your own story and tell the stories you see, it's a little hard to get over that. And then I realized, no, wait a minute, I have to go back and put myself in it as the seer because I am the stand-in for the reader. Well, it's the context. I mean, for instance, you being on the bus, third-class train in India with the the Indian women, where did you get the courage to travel through India? At one time you said, with a sari, a cup, and a comb. Mm -hmm. I immediately went, no moisturizer? (laughs) (laughs) Was it an ambition? Was it a drive to understand? Mm -hmm. What what was propelling you? There there were both positive and negative things. Uh, I mean, for instance, I realized in later life that most people— feel safe at home and maybe not so safe outside. I was always the reverse. I felt not so safe at home because I was a small person looking after a big one. That is, my mother was not well and I was often her caretaker. So I felt the world outside the home was safer. (laughs) So I got it reversed. And that probably helped me, you know, go off to India too. Also... I was escaping because I was engaged, and I, to a very nice man, I knew I should, you know, it would be a mistake if we married. And anyway, marriage seemed quite like death, you know, so so it didn't feel like it took courage. It, but, it felt like it was more free and more safe than the alternatives. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what makes each of us want to do something that, you know, nobody else is doing that drives us forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know when I set out from Detroit on a Greyhound bus with to go to Texas, of all places, with enough money to get there and arrive with 25 cents. When I think about that now, I think— Okay, well, why did you do that? What, What made you make that decision? I wanted to see the world. I say I was flinging myself at the world. That was the feeling, like, here I come, mm-hmm. and, and without um, fear. And I don't know where that comes from. You're very confident, and I understand your confidence from your father. Or are you very confident? Is that a well, fair description? I, I, I don't know if—how shall I say— I have confidence in my, uh, my in, in the possibility of connecting to other people. I never had confidence that I was, you know, going to be successful or have a lot of money or whatever in those terms. 
but I had the kind of chutzpah. <laughs> I remember thinking when I was a teenager, because all the news of the concentration camps, you know, was still very fresh then, and some of my relatives, who I did not know, but anyway, had perished in concentration camps. I remember thinking with incredible unrealism and chutzpah, I can't believe I thought this, that if there, if there was only one survivor, I would survive. Wow. I mean, that makes no sense, of course, because nobody in those camps was in control of their, you know, other people were in control. But, uh, you know, being, having a, a childhood in which you grow up too soon and kind of have to take care of somebody else does give you that feeling of being a survivor. Mm. You know you can do that. That's what we have in common. We're both survivors. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Right. Coming up, Gloria and I talk about getting older and what comes next. I feel so heartened by young women now. It just... I mean, the only way I can say this, that I finally tried to express what I feel, is that I just had to wait for a lot of my friends to be born. You know, because uh -huh. there they are, you know, with uh, more daring and more courage and just unquestioning ability to say, but this makes sense and that doesn't. It's great to see. Anna, are you there? Hi, Ellen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you, but you've had a baby since I last saw you. What did you That's have? true. I had a little baby girl. What's her name? Her name is June. She's named after my mother. <gasps> June is such a nice name. You don't hear that name too much anymore. Yeah. I hear that little June in the background. You hear? I do. <laughs> I do. Hello. <laughs> I have real desperate baby hunger, so maybe you'll let me come visit her someday. Of course. Okay. The invitation is open. <laughs> I just, I just need to hold a baby's foot. <laughs> you know. That makes me think about something you told me in our first conversation when we were talking about your son, and you said this beautiful line. You said. You become the noun mother by doing the verb, by yeah. mothering. Yeah. And I I have thought about that so much in the last few weeks and months, feeling clueless in moments, but then realizing, oh, I'm just doing the verb and that's making me the noun. It's, that's right. it's really something that's echoed in my mind. Yeah. One of the wonderful things about motherhood, I've found, it's very intense. You're so focused on keeping that child safe and well-fed and all of your attention and energy and effort is focused on that one little being. And then later, when, you know, after he or she is a grown-up person and you're on with other aspects of your life, you find that you have these little snapshot moments that you treasure forever. Like, I remember the first time I saw my baby cry. And I remember the first time I saw him smile. 
I was feeding him, and he made a face, and I just said as part of the patter that goes along with that process of feeding, I said, ah, you're putting me on. And he laughed at that. (laughs) And I thought, where did you get that sense of humor? (laughs) And that's a little snapshot I carry with me. You don't realize as you're doing it that those are happening and that they'll be a part of you forever. You're making me cry, Ellen, while I'm on, you know, I'm in maternity leave, so I'm on this, like, in this very intense moment. So to think about flashes of this time coming back to me over years and years from now is just kind of overwhelming. Well, that's what happens. And this is what's going to happen next. I'm Katie Bishop. And this is Chester Jesus Soria. We are Death, Sex, and Money's producers, and we want to say thank you so much to Ellen Burstyn for guest hosting this episode. And if you missed any of our other guest-hosted episodes with Sonia Manzano, Chris Gethard, and Diane Gilmores, you can find all of them on our website, and that's at deathsexmoney.org. While you're there, make sure you sign up for our newsletter. And the news you've been waiting for, Anna is returning from maternity leave very soon. So look out for a brand new episode with her back in the host chair in just a few weeks. But until then, we hope that you go back and listen to some of our favorite episodes. We've created a playlist just for you. You can find that on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash deathsexmoney. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. 
You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Ellen Burstyn, in for Anna Sale. Can I read the dedication? Yes, absolutely. This is how Gloria dedicates her book called My Life on the Road. It says, this book is dedicated to Dr. John Sharp of London, who in 1957, a decade before physicians in England could legally perform an abortion for any reason other than the health of the woman, took the considerable risk of referring for an abortion a 22-year-old American on her way to India. Knowing only that she had broken an engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, You must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. Dear Dr. Sharp, I believe you, who knew the law was unjust, would not mind if I say this so long after your death. I've done the best I could with my life. This book is for you. I wonder how many of us can say I've done the best I could. Oh, surely, you of all people, and many, many more. I mean, the best I could doesn't mean we didn't make tons of mistakes and take detours that made no sense. Do you have regrets? Yeah, no, I I do have regrets, right. What What do you do with regret when it rises up? Um, well, it, it's funny. It depends what it is. I mean, for instance, after I've been speaking someplace, I will walk around for the next day thinking of what I didn't say. Oh, I do that too. <laughs> so the closer it is, the bigger the regret or the more time it takes, you know, the more <laughs> detail it's in, right? <laughs> then it begins to kind of disappear in the rearview mirror somewhat. And... I just began to realize that in a general way, what I regret is not doing what I could uniquely do. That is, I spent a lot of time doing what I already knew how to do because it was useful or people asked me to do it. Or So I don't know if I do a good job of taking that to heart now, but I... I try to. I mean, I realize that I've, I'm trying to make better use of time because time is it. Right? It's what we have. Right? <laughs> yeah. How much loss have you had in your life so far? Your father's gone. Is your mother still alive? No. And my parents and my sister, who was my only sibling, yeah. are all no longer here. On the other side of the mountain, as you say in yes, the book. I love as that. Wilma Mankiller would say, right. My... Also, my family's all gone. I'm the only one left standing. Um, it's a funny feeling, isn't it? It is. I, you know, I never felt uh, all that rooted in a genealogical sense. You know, maybe I absorbed my mother's feeling because, as a theosophist, she believed in reincarnation. So she felt that. Children were little strangers born into the world who, 
were not necessarily like the family at all uh, because they were reincarnated beings and you had the pleasure and the duty of looking after them, uh, but they were already themselves. I don't know if I absorbed that, but I didn't have a strong feeling of connectedness to, to, to blood family ever, and I, st I still don't. Really? Uh, but I, I have a very strong feeling of chosen family, of people we meet and connect with and can finish each other's sentences. Gloria says Wilma Mankiller, chief of the Cherokee Nation, was chosen family to her. She was a friend of Gloria's for almost 30 years. At a memorial for Wilma, Gloria said, we bonded in the way that friends bond, which is a marriage in itself, in sickness and in health, in good times and bad. And I totally feel that we were connected. Wilma also played a big role in Gloria's actual marriage in 2000. We were going to see her anyway for, for their annual powwow, and I called her and said, I'm thinking of doing this, should I do this? And she said, well, she'd think about it and call me in the morning. <laughs> so she <laughs> went out and sat under the stars and called me in the morning and said, yes. So, so uh, she and her husband, who's a traditional healer, offered us a Cherokee ceremony. At 66 years old, in a sunrise ceremony in Oklahoma, Gloria married the South African-born English entrepreneur and animal rights activist, David Bale. David and I fell in love, and we wanted to be together, um, and that's the important thing. I'm sure we never would have thought about getting legally married had he not needed a green card. Uh -huh. And... By that time, the women's movement, generally speaking, had worked for, I don't know, 30 years to equalize the laws, the marriage laws. Mm -hmm. So no longer would I lose my name and my credit rating and my legal domicile and all my civil rights as I would have had I got married when I was supposed to. So I thought, well, you know, why not? I mean, I'm not going to lose and, in fact— he will gain the security of having a green card. The one thing that kind of I learned from this was that people suddenly started to say things to me like, at last you've met the love of your life, as if there were one love in our lives. Yeah. I think there are different loves in, yeah. in our lives. And David, too, had been married and had children. You know, I mean, why make a hierarchy out of our yeah. Out of the people we love. And then only three years after you married, David died. Was that sudden or did he, was he ill? He had been ill for quite a long time, a little more than a year, yes. Yeah. He had, a, a, he had brain lymphoma, so it was quite incapacitating for most of a year. And were you with him at the time? Yes, yeah, yes. How has that affected well, I, you or changed you? I think uh, it was all-consuming, and I was kind of obsessed with whether or not he knew that I and his grown-up children, who tried to be there as much as they could, that we were there because he had been 
an abandoned child, and I think I feared that he was he seemed to be returning to his childhood and feel abandoned. So it was hard. It was really, really very hard. But in in retrospect, I think he the fact that we were together gave him what he needed, which was some happiness and fun and newness and also someone to escort him out of life. And he gave me what I needed, which was uh, an intense experience of living in the present. Otherwise, I live in the future. He forced me to live 100% in the present. And also, he let me do over what I couldn't really do for my mother. I mean, being a small person taking care of a big person is is hard. And I, I couldn't really do it, and I was haunted by it. But being uh, an adult taking care of another adult was possible, and it gave me a chance to, to do that over. Have, have you been with other people at the moment that they left? Not, no, not very. My mother and my sister. Oh, you were with their mm-hmm. whole family? Not my father, I'm sorry to say. I wish yes, I had I been there. Right. Um, what is that moment like for you? What happens to you in that well, moment? And with Wilma. I was with Wilma. The most amazing thing to me is that you know the moment that someone is gone. Yes. Yeah. It's... I don't even know how to describe it, and I don't know if it's other people experience this or not, but suddenly the person you love isn't there. That's right. And I can see why people speak of the soul or some, you know, because it's just suddenly that spirit is gone. Yeah, I think of it as an animating presence. Hmm. Yes, that's a good way of, right. Yeah. And do you feel that having experienced that changed you as a person? I don't mean just your husband. I mean all of them. Yeah, I I think so. You know, I think I'm I'm still dealing with it because, of course, I continue to behave as if I were immortal. which is not very practical. (laughs) You're pretty close, though, I have to say. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I don't think I am yet as comfortable as people in other cultures are, you know, with the idea of death. Uh, And I'm still trying to hang in there till I'm 100 because just to meet my deadlines, I (laughs) have to do that. But I think it it did make me feel more comfortable, especially because Wilma, who had been very near death once many years before she actually died, described to me a near-death experience. It's so beautiful in the book, that moment. Would you just say it now? Uh, Well, she she was describing a a car accident, a nearly lethal car accident, and the fact that she felt as she was going toward death, warm and loved and as if she were flying faster than any 
could anything could possibly fly and at one with the universe and as if she kind of knew this was the purpose of life. You know, it was kind of an ecstatic experience. And that she called herself back because she had two young daughters. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm torn because I love it here. I love walking around the streets. I love, you know, I love what I do. I love uh, listening to people and learning. I love stories. I love, you know, so it's hard because I'm very attached. Your account of Wilma and when she died or crossed over to the other side of the mountain, as you say, signal fires were lit around the world because it was a tradition in both uh, pagan times and in native tradition that when a great one passes, fires are lit all over the world. So I just want to tell you that should you get to the other side of the mountain before I do, oh, great one, (laughs) I will see to it as best as I can that signal fires for you. And because we are chosen family, I'll see you there. Whichever one of us goes first, doesn't matter. I'll see you there. Okay. (laughs) That's Gloria Steinem. Her latest book is My Life on the Road. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. You can find me, Ellen Burstyn, in a film I just finished shooting in Minnesota called The House of Tomorrow. It's a really good one. I love it. And you can find more episodes of Death, Sex, and Money, including the one where Anna interviewed me, by visiting deathsexmoney.org. You can also find it in other episodes on iTunes. Gloria has been leading the movement for decades and knows there is still plenty of work to do. I just had a a revelation from a friend the other day who was, she went to see her in-laws. The man, because his wife is ill, was longing to go into assisted living. And it made both of us realize that he had been in assisted living his entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and had not learned how to take care of himself. Right? That's right. I'm Ellen Burstyn, in for Anna Sale. And this is... Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.